Hi, this is Robert Furrow, and welcome to TruthQuest Podcast. This is our Q&A, where we look at questions through the lens of Scripture. Our desire is to know what God's Word says, so we can know what to believe. If you have a question, then write the word question or a question mark in front of it, and then write out your question, reread it a couple of times, make sure that it makes sense, and then go ahead and commit it, uh, a comment in the comment section below, and we'll get to it through the course of our Q&A. Our first question comes uh, from a Q&A that we had a couple of weeks ago about whether or not we are the generation when Jesus is going to return. In Matthew 24, Jesus tells a parable. Learn a lesson from the fig tree. When you see its leaves begin to sprout and bud, this generation will by no means pass away until the end. Now, some have interpreted the fig tree as being the nation of Israel. And the Old Testament definitely has Israel, talks about Israel being reborn again, and the last days are going to come back into the land, and then even passages that talk about them having Jerusalem again. Jesus himself said that when the time of the Gentiles was full, that uh, Jerusalem would be trampled underfoot by the Gentiles until the time of the Gentiles is full. So there is a connection between the nation of Israel and the last days. The question is, though, is this budding, is the fig tree Israel? And if so, then what's a biblical generation? Some thought it was 40 years. That means Israel became a nation in 48. Jesus would have had to come back by 88. Some say it's 70 years. So you get 70 years onto 48 and you get to 28, right? Am I right? My math right? Um, might be, might be um, I guess, 18, which is fast. So now people are saying that the length of life has been put on people as the most 120 days. So you had 120 days from basically 150 and you get to 170, 168 as being the return of Christ. And so there's a lot of time for people to play with it. But I think that that kind of reasoning is faulty. I think when it says, when you see these things begin to bud, it's not just talking about Israel. In fact, in Matthew 24, it says, when you see all of these things begin to happen, then you know that the end is near. Let me just go ahead and put this up on the screen for you here, and um, we'll take a look at it. So this is Matthew 24, and uh, let me get to the parable of the fig tree. Sorry to do that right there in front of you. I didn't do it in front of you. I did it here. I'm just doing it. All right. So um, I think it was 2434. So let me see. Yeah, the parable of the fig tree. Let me put it up here. Let's just read through this. So it says, well, did I not get mine? Let me see if I can add this. There we go. Uh, Now learn this parable from the fig tree. When its branches are already become tender and puts forth leaves, you know that summer is near. So you also, when you see all these things, know that it is near at the door. Now, the all these things I think is important there. It's not just Israel as a nation, but it's all of the birth pains that have been spoken of before. It's a culmination of the earthquakes and the wars and the rumors of wars, uh, all, uh, the, the raging of the seas, all of these things happening at one time. That that is when, when all of these things happen. It says, surely I say to you, this generation will by no means pass away uh, till all these things take place. Now, in the book of Luke, it talks about the, it says, learn a parable from the fig tree and all the trees. And if the fig tree is a nation of Israel, then all of the trees would be all of the nations. So Jesus could be saying two things here. 
there's got to be something happening in all of the nations, like the one world government coming into play, the ready for the Antichrist to come on the scene, plus all of the catastrophes that are the birth pains in Luke 21 and in Matthew 24. And when all of these things converge, as some people say, then we know that the end is near. It might just be that it's the talking about just being aware of the signs of the times. Jesus rebuked the scribes and Pharisees for not being aware of the signs of the times. And so we should know the signs and times without trying to put a date on it. And I think date setting is one of the major problems of our culture. Biblical prophecy is awesome. Last day's prophecy is awesome, but it is plagued with date setters. And people use this to set dates. The Bible says, Jesus said in a parable, occupy until I come. We're to do our job. I like what Jimmy Evans says. He says, have babies, live your life, go through your life and look, have your eyes on the skies and be ready for Jesus to return at any moment. All right. So, um, yeah, I think we could be the biblical generation, but I don't know that we have to be. I don't know that we, this is a birth pain where things get crazy and then the birth pain will lay off and it'll be fine. And then we'll get another birth pain later on. It seems right to me that people would think Jesus is returning during a birth pain and birth pains come and go until the baby is born or birth pains come and go until in this case, Jesus comes back. And so we probably are in the midst of a birth pain. Now, is this the birth pain that will bring Jesus? Maybe. Is there another one later on that will do it? Maybe. All right. So it is good to see you guys uh, here. Uh, we have uh, put up a new camera angle for you. Uh, so, uh, you're able to kind of see behind the scenes of what's taking place here. So I want to just go through here and see your questions. Um, it's good to see you guys. Good to have you here with us. If you are watching for the very first time, we want to welcome you. Uh, we have a question here from Rod. I'll go ahead and bring that on for you. And then I will go back to this. All right. So um, Rod says, is, um, is local church membership biblical? Being saved, we become members of the church isn't attending and serving the same as membership. Rod, thank you very much. Always have insightful questions. Uh, yes, um, I, church membership, as in having someone sign a covenant, as in promising that you're gonna tithe a certain amount of your money, is not biblical. There's no place in the Bible where it says that you have to become a member of the church of a certain particular church. When you give your life to Christ and you are born again, he, he baptizes you, the Bible says, into the body of Christ. And now that you are baptized into the body of Christ, now you are part of the body of Christ. And whatever church you would attend, then you could connect with the people that are there as part of the church and your own spiritual gifts would be used there. And then you would be able to focus in on you uh, where, where you want to give your finances to. You get to determine that. And I don't like being put under any kind of a covenant that makes me beyond what the Bible already restricts me. I don't like to, Rod, I don't like to sign anything. I got to be very, I want to be very careful when I sign anything. Even if somebody says to me, I want to tell you this, but you can't tell anybody. Then I just go, you know what? I'd rather not hear it. I don't like, because I don't want to be under a restriction. What if it's something that somebody needs to hear? And if somebody tells me something then says, please don't tell anybody I told you this, I always say, I'm sorry, but I can't make that promise. 
because I don't want to be put under further restrictions. So if I, <coughs> excuse me, if I join as the member of a church and they make me sign a covenant with them, I'm now putting myself under restrictions that I, I shouldn't have to do. Sorry, sorry. And, and I don't want to put myself under those kind of restrictions. So yes, you are part of the body of Christ when you make your commitment to and you don't need to put yourself under any other kind of commitment. <clears throat> now, sorry, a little bit of a cough going on here. Uh, it, it'll work its way out. I'm glad I got that cough button up. All right, so um, thank you, Rod, for your question. I really do appreciate it. Uh, we have another question here from Paul. Paul says, uh, hi, Pastor. Hi, Pastor Robert. I need advice on how to respond to a prayer request from my mother, who is a strong Catholic and Christ follower, requesting prayer for my deceased grandmother, who was also a Catholic, in regards to her possibly being in purgatory and praying for her to make it to heaven. Against, um, against my beliefs of purgatory, and I know it's against most of the Bible, are against most Bible-based teachings. Thank you, Paul. I appreciate it. Um, yeah, so this is a little bit tricky because it's your mother. So I do have people um, in Tucson. There's a large Catholic. Um, there's there's a large Catholic group in in the city. We have Catholics that go to our church. And these guys have really made a, oftentimes have really made a commitment to Christ. Sometimes they're leaving the Catholic Church. Sometimes they're in both of them and working with both of them. I'll get rid of this little hack sooner or later. Uh, and um, so when they come up and say, um, my mother just passed away. Could you pray for her? I say, let me pray for the family. So I don't make it an issue. I don't go. I don't feel like I have to say to them, listen, there's no reason for me to pray for your mom because your mom's not in purgatory and she's in the, either in presence of Jesus or she's not. I, I don't need to go into all of that. And I feel like compassion at that point doesn't do that. I feel like out of compassion, I just come alongside of them. Let me say, I say, let me pray for you. Let me pray for your family. I pray for God's peace on them. I pray that through the loss of a loved one, they would reevaluate their lives. So there's just certain prayers I pray for. So that's the way that I handle it. <clears throat> when um, your mother is asking you now, and she's probably asking you more often, Paul, to pray for her, you might not be able to handle it in that way. And maybe, I don't know if you can have a conversation with your mom, that says, Mom, I love you. I know that you've committed your life to Christ, that you're not trusting in the Catholic Church to be saved. You're not trusting in sacraments to be saved, but you're trusting in Christ to be saved. Um, I don't believe in purgatory, so I can't, I'm not going to pray for um, your mom who's in purgatory. Is that what she was asking? Your mother requests me to, uh, strong Catholic Christ followers, pray for the deceased grandmother. Yeah. I don't know if you can have a conversation. to be able to do that um, a little bit more effectively. But um, uh, that's how I would handle it, is I would try 
to just say, let me pray, let me pray for you and them. You might need to have just more of a loving conversation where you're not trying to convince her. Another thing that I don't think that I need to do is to convince everybody that everything they believe is wrong. I, I think that God's working on them and I don't give unsolicited advice generally. If somebody asks me, or I really feel led by the spirit to talk to somebody about something, then I certainly will do that. But I'm not gonna give unsolicited advice. I'm very happy for that little mute button right now. All right, I hope in between my coughs that made sense, Paul. All right, so thank you very much uh, for your question. Let me get this back over here, get you guys this little view here again. You can kind of see what I'm doing here as I'm looking for these questions. <clears throat> so we have another question from Joe. Uh, Joe says, Joe says, question, last Sunday you spoke about forgiveness. Nothing we must forgive, um, noting we must forgive and don't have to reconcile. To be clear, if someone asks forgiveness, are you saying it's just to make the choice still not to let them back into your life, i.e. family member? <clears throat> I just thought that was a bit conflicting as a Christian and perhaps taking this out of context. Thanks, Joe. I appreciate that. Um, yeah, and I could see how you would think that. Um, so yes, you have to forgive, right? And you've got to forgive everybody. And whether or not they ask for forgiveness, you let it go. And in a message I talked about, how you forgive a debt, somebody owes you money and you say, you no longer owe me it. And so you could say of someone who hurt you to God, you don't have to say to them, I, you know, they no longer owe me anything. God, I forgive them. <clears throat> I am letting them go completely. And then um, you don't have to, if someone's hurt you, then you don't have to reconcile. Now, if someone comes and says, I'm sorry, it makes reconciliation much more likely. In fact, if someone came up and said, I'm sorry, and there was no good reason for you to reconcile, then that may very well be sin on your part. So let's just say somebody um, got really upset with me and they yelled at me and they just said, you're just stupid. And they got up and left. And after they got up and left, I thought, you know, this relationship might be a bit toxic. I think I wanna back away from it. Lord, I let it go, but I think I'm gonna back away from this relationship. <clears throat> and then later on the next day, they come up to me and they say, Listen, I'm sorry when I said that. I'm trying to deal with my anger. And would you forgive me? I think then for me to continue to back away from the relationship, although I might not say it's sin, <clears throat> could be somewhat wrong instead of restoring it. But let's say that there's someone, let's just go to the extreme here, Joe. Let's say that someone was, was molested. Let's say I was molested as a child by someone. I wasn't, but let's just say that I was. I was molested as a child by as a child by someone. And then they contact me and say, and let's just say they're related, they're <clears throat> a great uncle. And they call me up and they say, listen, I realized what I did to you as a kid was horrible and wrong. And um, I'm sorry, um, would you forgive me? And I say, yes, I can, I'll forgive you. And then he says, um, what about me coming over for Thanksgiving? Can I come to Thanksgiving? And I got grandkids here. And here now I got a great uncle and grandkids and the, the age is too different, but you understand the point I'm making. Uh, I don't have to restore him just because he apologized. Doesn't mean I have to restore that relationship. <clears throat> I only have so much bandwidth when it comes to people in my life. 
And just because someone wants to be in my life or I used to have someone in my life doesn't mean they have to be there. Now, I don't need to be mean to them. I don't need to call them out, but I can simply choose that, you know what, I, I'm not going to be able to get together regularly with this person. I just can't have them uh, in my life right now. And especially if they're a toxic person and if they repeatedly do it. Now, Jesus said, if someone uh, offends you <clears throat> seven times 70, then go ahead and forgive them. But still doesn't mean restoration. Now, I hope that that helps. Let me just read your question again here. I want to make sure that I've answered each part of it. Last Sunday, you spoke about forgiveness, noting that we must forgive, but do not have to reconcile, all right, which I just covered. To be clear, if someone asks for forgiveness, you are saying it's okay not to make the choice still not to have them back in your life. <clears throat> yes, I think situationally, there are those that you would say, I don't want you back in my life, um, a divorced person per se, um, but you do forgive them. <clears throat> but there are other situations where you would let them back in. You certainly don't have to. You say, i.e. family member, I just thought that was a bit conflicting as a Christian and perhaps taking this out of context. Okay, yeah, and I don't think I'm taking it out of context, And um, but I do think that you understand what I'm saying. This is more, you, you've got to make decisions and it's going to be more nuanced for each person. And that's why this is so difficult. But sometimes people feel like, you know, I've got my ex-husband, I've forgiven him, he's asked for forgiveness, but I don't need to have him back in my life now. And you get to choose how much he will be in your life, probably based on kids. And if there's no kids, then you don't have to have him in your life at all. It doesn't mean you hate him. It doesn't mean you wouldn't take his call. But it does mean if he were to say, um, hey, can we get together? You would say, nah, you know, I don't want to. And an ex-husband or ex-wife should understand at that point. All right, Joe. And if you have a follow-up on that, <clears throat> if what I said wasn't really clear, I didn't answer your question, um, then you can go ahead and ask a follow-up. All right. So we have a question from Albert. Albert, good to see you. Albert says, in Genesis 3, 7, Adam and Eve eyes are opened and they realize they are naked. They later ask Adam who told him he was naked in this. Is this the first example of the law being revealed in scripture? That's a really good question. And I thought a lot about what happened when Adam and Eve ate of the fruit. What was it that actually changed for them? There seems to have been an innocence, but an awareness of right and wrong, right? Don't eat of this fruit. That would be wrong. And Eve seemed to know that. <clears throat> Although she butchered God's word, Adam knew that. But there seems to have been some innocence. And maybe, maybe there was an awareness of right or wrong but they didn't have the sin nature. And so they weren't thinking in evil ways. Adam eats of the fruit, and now all of a sudden he notices he's naked. This brings shame to him. Maybe now because the sin nature has been brought in to him, now he has shame and they realize we've got to get covered up. And so they use fig leaves to cover themselves up, which are right, really insufficient. And God ends up making animal skins, which we presume he killed an animal, which would be the first sacrifice that was made to cover the shame of mankind after sinning. So that would be what I think would happen. Now, your question, Albert, is this the first um, example of the law? Not the law of Moses, to be sure. But remember, there were certainly things that we knew before the law of Moses were right or wrong. 
So the law written on man's heart or the moral law, they knew not to steal, they knew not to kill. In fact, they were told if they do kill, they would be killed because they killed somebody in the image of God. So yes, uh, an example, Albert, of the moral law that all men were aware of right and wrong. Uh, God told uh, Cain, sin is crouching at the door, its desire is for you, but you should rule over it. So this was in this temptation to murder his brother, which he he would eventually do. So yes, there was definitely a sense of of right or wrong. I would say that's exactly what it is. The only thing I would say to make sure, Albert, is that you realize this is not the law of Moses. So the law of Moses was different. It included the moral law, but it also had ceremonial laws. It also had dietary laws and restrictions that we would not be under in any way, shape or form. But we are still under the moral law. And the moral law, the, all the moral laws are are reiterated in the New Testament. <clears throat> all right. Good question and a good thought to think about exactly what happened. And if you guys have any idea other than my thought that when Adam and Eve ate of the apple, now they rebelled against God and they had that sin nature, what God told them not to do. They had knowledge that there was wrong before, but now because of their sin nature, they look at the world radically different. And that ended up causing them to have that sin nature, which it caused the world to end up falling. All right. So thank you very much uh, for that. I have uh, a little bit of fun with my little button there. Um, We have a question from Jari. Jari says, why did David and many Old Testament saints experience things Jesus went through? Example, uh, betrayal, garments being gambled, etc. Did this determine true and false prophets in the Old Testament? And then X. Maybe you ran out of space there, Jari. So let me bring this in here again and just look at it again. Why did David and many Old Testament saints experience things Jesus went through? Okay, so what we're looking at here, Jari, is the way prophecy worked in the Old Testament or the way prophecy works. Uh, we there There's a certain way that God brings prophecy forth and God gets to choose how that's brought forth. And the way that God chose to bring it forth a lot of times was to have somebody going through something and they spoke of it. And while they were speaking about what they were going through, then God gave them a prophecy that would end up being fulfilled in Jesus. And this is not something that the New Testament made up. This was understood in Jewish literature that there were a lot of prophecies that were in the middle of something happening. And Psalms 22 is a great example of that. And let me just go there and show you this, Jari. So in um, in Psalms 22, let me get there. Psalms 22, I'm going to start in verse 1. And um, let me bring this up on the screen for you. All right. So here it, it says that this is a chief musician sent to the set to the deer of the dawn, whatever melody that was, uh, a Psalm of David. So this is Psalm of David. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? So David feels like God's not answering him. This isn't a something, anything about separation that becomes very evidenced by this Psalm. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And why are you so far from helping me and from the words of my groaning? Why aren't you helping me when I ask you, why aren't you answering me? Oh my God, I cry in the daytime, but you do not hear. In the night season, you are not silent. So David literally was crying day and night, but for Jesus, it was on the cross because there was a three-hour time of darkness. In the night vision, am silent, 
but you are holy, enthroned in the praises of Israel. Our fathers trusted in you. They trusted you. You delivered them. They cried out to you, and you delivered them. And then I want to go, I want to move ahead here, and I'll, I'll do this because I want to show you that this is about God not answering him. <clears throat> and all of a sudden, he realizes that God has answered him. Let's see. All right, yeah. Let's see from you have declared me in the midst of the assembly. Praise you. Uh, let me see if I can find this exact spot. All right, let's go back in here. We'll read it from here. <clears throat> it says, this is the part you're talking about. They divided my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. Now, I don't know whether David went through something like this, that God was bringing him through so he would write this, or if this is something that David wrote as he was looking through this. But you, O Lord, do not be far from me. O strengthen, hasten to help me. Deliver me from the sword, my precious life, from the power of the dogs. Save me from the lion's mouth and from the horns of the wild oxen. And then he says, you have answered me. Now, all of a sudden, in verse 21, you have him answered. It starts off in the beginning of Psalms 22, why have you forsaken me? So he's wondering, why aren't you answering me? But now all of a sudden, there's an answer. And look at the answer that he gives. You have answered me. I will declare your name to my brethren. It's because of Israel that I'm being crucified. Or for David, I'm going through this for your brethren. In the midst of the assembly, I will praise you. You who fear the Lord, praise him. All the descendants of Jacob, Jesus is dying for Israel. Glorify him and fear him, you offsprings of Israel. For he has not despised nor abhorred the afflicted of the afflicted, nor has he hidden him from their face. But when he cried to him, he heard many praise shall be uh, you in the great assembly. I pay my vows before those who fear me. The poor shall eat and be satisfied. Those who seek him will praise the Lord. Let your heart live forever and the ends of the world shall remember and turn to the Lord. So now he's turned to the nations and all the families of the nations. So now he's turned not only to Israel, but he's dying on the cross for nations. And then finally, <clears throat> he gets to a people that have not been born yet. Sorry to do this while you're here. He says, I will come and declare righteousness to a people who have not been born, that he has done this or that it is finished. So Psalms 22 becomes that great example of a passage in the Bible that has an event someone's going through, but becomes prophecy in itself. This is the way that God has determined for prophecy to be. And you see that throughout the Old Testament. Now, God at times has said, say unto the city of Tyre, I'm gonna do this. So it's not people going through experiences that have this, and I'm not sure of the exact right way to word it, um, Double fulfillment isn't the right word because the person's going through it and it's speaking of a prophecy, but maybe a foreshadowing. What David goes through is a foreshadowing of what the prophecy ends up going through. And this is the way oftentimes that God wrote prophecy. And so I, I, I hope that's helpful, Jari, to you. And I'm not sure what the question of it is. Um, a lot of times prophecy is really clear in hindsight. Not so clear as we're looking forward, but we can look back in hindsight. And that's why I believe God's given it to us so that it's his calling card. I am God. There is no other. He said in Isaiah, I am God. There is none like me telling the end from the beginning. <clears throat> so when we look back and we see the experience of David in Psalm 22 is the exact experience of, of Jesus on the cross. The Holy Spirit was using what he was going through and his prayer to give us the first person account of Jesus on the cross. They pierced my hands and my feet is, is God saying, I'm God. 
This is his calling card. I told the future. And it's actually pretty amazing. All right. So um, you're welcome to follow through, Jari, if I haven't gotten that. Um, and see, I'm going to go ahead and skip up your other follow up question. Uh, Jari, I may come back to it. Um, so, um, Rod, I'm going to go ahead. Um, all right. So Rod has a question about uh, a question that we had today, um, a follow up on the question we had today. Can you be members of more than one church? Well, let's think about it this way first, Rod. <clears throat> there is the universal church. That's what the word Catholic means. So in the creeds, when it says, I believe in the Catholic church, it's not making a statement to what we would concern as the Roman Catholic church, but we're talking about the universal church. I believe that there are people in China, Iran, Russia, Israel, all around the world that are my brothers and sisters in the Lord, and I am part of the church and they are part of the church. So in that sense, I can't be more a member of more than one church because we are all one body. We are all part of one church. There's one baptism, one body. I would throw in one church there. Now, if I'm going to be in Tucson and I <clears throat> I like going to Pantano Christian and I like going to Calvary Chapel and I'm not the pastor, I like going to Calvary Chapel. So I decide I'm going to go to both churches. I'm going to go to Calvary Chapel on Saturday night and I'm going to go to Pantano on Sunday morning. And I'm going to go ahead and give to both of them. And I'm going to get involved in both of them so that I'm doing something, I'm using my gifts in both of these. Then I don't see any reason why you couldn't do that. The only thing I can think of that people would say not to do it is because they might end up feeling uh, jealous or envious or what's the right word, threatened, insecure, that you are going to two churches. I have no problem with that as a pastor. If someone is going to our church and they're going to another church, it's just like they're doubling up on their fellowship. They know more people. As long as it's a good, solid church, I think that's absolutely awesome. So in a way, Rod, please bring your question back up here again. In a way, no, you can't be a member of more than one church because of the church that's all around the world is one church. We're all part of one church. You can't say, I don't like Robert. I'm not going to be part of his church. Well, you can leave Calvary Tucson, but you can't leave the church that I'm a part of. We're brothers nonetheless. Okay? So thank you for that. I really do appreciate that. Let me just get back here and look at this. All right, so Jari has a follow-up question. Let's go ahead and take this in here. Um, follow-up, Old Testament, was anyone possessed? So <clears throat> I can't remember the question. This is a follow-up to Jari. Um, but I, I have said often, in the Old Testament, you do not see any possessions and especially casting out demons until you get to the ministry of Jesus. And that's really weird. That's kind of a strange phenomenon, right? And um, why does the scripture mention much about deliverance? Thanks. Uh, and <clears throat> I, I think there are these two extremes, one where you discount a spiritual battle and another one where you're way too extreme on spiritual warfare. And I think the sweet spot is, is by the Bible. You put on the armor of God and you stand. You don't give place to the devil. You flee temptation and the evil one can't touch you. I think that when people are trying to deliver a demon out of you as a Christian, then I think that that's a problem. I think it's very rare that Christians, uh, that Satan can actually oppress a Christian. I'm not saying it can never happen on any level. I just think it's very rare uh, that that can be the case. All right, 
So thank you, Jari, for your follow-up. I do appreciate that. Uh, we have a question from Queen Dai. All right, uh, Queen Dai. People are mad at Kanye West for saying he has love for everyone. The um, H guy, right? God works through <clears throat> everything, even the H guy. Well, all right, let's talk a little bit about Kanye West. So Kanye West became a Christian, even put out a worship song and even did some services. And people really began to lift him up. And I, I thought it was a problem when that happened. Not because it's Kanye West, because you don't want to lay hands on anyone too quickly. People need to grow and mature. Even those who are going to be used in ministry cannot be novices. You've got to attend for a while. You've got to be a baby Christian. You've got to grow and you've got to be established. And a lot of times when a celebrity becomes a Christian, people grab a hold of them right away and put them up front. B.J. Thomas of the Raindrops Keep Falling On My Head fame became a Christian but eventually left saying he wants to, he wanted his fans back. He had a song that I loved about dying, B.J. Thomas, where he said, one day I'll be sleeping and death knocks on my door and I'll awake to find that I'm not homesick anymore because I'll be home. I'll be home where I belong. I loved it. But B.J. Thomas walked away from God because he was put up too quickly. Bob Dylan, you're gonna have to serve somebody, was one of his great Christian songs. And he did great in the beginning. But pretty soon he left and Kanye West, it looks like, is now becoming part of the Hebrews Roots movement. OK, um, the black, um, the black Hebrew Israelites. And the, this is a, a vast group of people. There's a lot of different um, sects of them. They don't all believe the same thing, but they all have this basic idea that they are either the lost tribes of Israel or some of them believe that because they became slaves, black people became slaves, that's a revelation that they really belong to Israel. A lot of their stuff doesn't make sense. It won't connect really well. They don't like the Jews, and so they're anti-Semitic. And again, there's different groups. So some may be less or more. I don't know if there's any that are not at all, but it seems like Kanye West has gotten involved in this black Hebrew Israelite movement. The thing about them is when, when you have a conversation with one, they're going to be very dominating. They're going to dominate your conversation. They're going to throw a lot of figures at you. And when you begin to respond, they're going to cut you off and throw them back again. And a lot of these groups, especially the ones that are out on the street, will come back at you with, back at you with venom. They'll really attack you and they'll attack you hard, sometimes even violently. And so it's probably best to back away from them to try to shine your light the best that you can, <clears throat> but not to get into a real deep theological argument with them because the way that they handle that is that they are so full of venom that you end up backing away from them completely. And um, so no, there is nothing about God loving um, the the guy who started and, and wanted to destroy Jewish people, put them in concentration camps. The Bible says in, um, there's, a, there's a passage that says that God is on his throne and he, and it, go, it goes on to say from his throne, he works righteously and he hates all who do wickedness. And then there's another passage that says that he hates those who begin to do wickedness or begin to do evil or begin to do violence. I can't remember the exact wording, but the idea is yes, that God loves everyone. 
And when he was a little boy or before he had made those decisions, there was a love there. But when he got violent, then, and, and, and he crossed some line, I think only God would know that line. Then he crossed that line, he became that violent person, then God did hate him. It's not that you can't repent from that and move back into the love of God. And maybe there's still a way in which God loves them. But remember what love is. God is love, the Bible says. So love is kind and long-suffering. And so God was long-suffering with him, and he was kind. But long-suffering and patience and kind doesn't mean that you're never going to bring judgment or that you might not be really begin to hate that person who's torturing someone. So uh, I would, um, to answer your question, uh, Queen D, uh, yeah, people are mad at Kanye West for saying there's a love for the H guy. I don't think that's why they're mad at him. They're they're mad at him because he defends them, and they're mad at him because he is anti-Semitic. And some people try to say that he's anti-Semitic because of the Jewish people that were in the music industry that he's been fighting against. And and maybe some of them didn't treat him unfairly, but it seems like financial he's done okay. And now he's part, it seems, part of this black Hebrew Israelite movement. And um, that, is, um, that is very problematic. Whenever you see someone who becomes a Christian who is immediately pushed out front, man, there's problems. We should just let them go. And um, so, yeah, I, I don't think we're condemning Queen. I see your another comment here where you say, um, my question is, how can the condemn someone for showing love? Uh, you got to go back and look at what Kanye is saying. He's not showing love. Okay, he's not showing love at all. He is he is hating people who are Jewish. And by talking about those who persecuted Jewish people in a positive way, he's reinforcing that. So I I have no judgment against Kanye. I don't condemn Kanye at all, all right? I hope that, that this is just a, a season that he's in. So by me saying that what Kanye West said was wrong doesn't mean I'm condemning him. I'm condemning what he's saying, not what he, what he did. And so I think that we can do that. You, you might be able to go back and look at some of what Kanye said. Kanye said, is every person that was in the German army, were they all evil? Or could there have been someone who was in the German army that was called by the name of someone in the German army and that they could be called a Nazi? I'll just I'll just say it. If uh, if we get if this gets taken down, it gets taken down. Um, if, if 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 he says not all Nazis, not all non Nazis were evil. There could have been some of them in the Nazi army that weren't evil. Well, yeah, that's correct. That's right. But that doesn't mean that there wasn't this great wickedness that was done by the leaders of the Nazi movement, which covered everything. And that the commands that they gave to the lower ranks to go out and do, and the evils that the, the vast majority of them committed. So by trying to say things like this, you are we're not condemning Kanye at all. We hope that he really has a relationship with Christ. We hope he doesn't go down the wrong road, all right? But we're not being condemning to him at all, okay? So <clears throat> we, we can you know talk about him a little more if you want to. Um, but no, we're not being condemning of him. And we, we, our problem with him isn't that he said that, that, that he liked Hitler, right? That's not our question. That's not the problem that we have with the law. It's the hatred towards the Jewish people. That's the problem. 
All right. So, I mean, we could pick and choose to try to say things to make a person look right or wrong, but we shouldn't. All right. So thank you very much. I appreciate <clears throat> your question. We have another question from Fact Check. Uh, let me just go this way. Uh, we have another question here uh, from Fact Check These Hands, who says, your thoughts on short-term medical mission trips? I want to do one, but it isn't still, um, but is, but it isn't still right with me for some reason. All right. So um, yeah, I, um, uh, I, I think that short-term medical trips are really good. I, there would be no problem with them. Uh, someone who has medical background who wants to go down to an area, they they set up um, a, a hospital somewhere or they set up medical offices somewhere. They take care of people in the area that are hurting. That's very compassionate. A lot of times they'll have people go with them who aren't medical, but they can go and share the gospel. And so the gospel is being sh spread while this medical care is being done. Um, why why might it not be sitting right with you? Fact check these hands. Um, there could be a couple of reasons for that. Maybe the organization you think you're going, that you're going to go with, God doesn't want you to go with. Maybe God doesn't want you to do it right now, but he wants you to do it later on. Maybe God wants you to look for another organization. It's not because there's anything wrong with short-term medical mission trips. They're good, but it could be, you know, we're, we're each led by the Spirit and we're looking for the leading of the Spirit in our lives. And so sometimes I might feel like, you know, I just don't feel like I'm supposed to go to dinner that night. I think the Spirit's giving me a check. Now, is the Spirit really giving me a check? I don't know. But if I feel like the Spirit has told me not to go to that restaurant that night, then I shouldn't go, right? Because I feel like it. Now, I don't want to get too weird about it. I don't want to get too caught up in it. Some people can start to get, they get really weird. I'm going to, I'm supposed to take this route instead of that route when I go home. Um, and, and they make themselves more spiritual because I listen to the Holy Spirit all of the time in every, every uh, situation. So I would take this as something that would be rare, that check from the Spirit in certain situations. And so when you say, but something isn't sitting right with me now, I would use the term, I get a check in my spirit. I'm just getting something that doesn't feel like it's quite right. And I think that's good. And I would say, then then don't do it, but look at other op opportunities to be able to do it and see if there's something else uh, that you would be able uh, to be involved in. All right, so we have a question here from Requia. Requia says, uh, my best friend has been feeling God call her. I have spoken to her about the gospel. She seemed receptive to accepting Jesus, but has determined she will keep thinking about it. What can I do? Require good to see you. Um, yeah, okay, so uh, we're the light of the world. We're the salt of the earth. The Bible says one man plants, another man waters, and God gives the increase. And so your friend has the right over their lives. They have the right to open the door to Jesus or not. They have the right of decision. God loves them and gave them the right to be able to choose. And so you've got to let them be able to choose. So you've shared the gospel. I would be willing to talk to her more. I would pray for her. And I'm, I know people are going to say, I, well, yeah, that's the obvious answer. And it is the obvious answer, but maybe we just haven't thought about it. You want to keep praying for her because she seems to be open to it. Um, maybe if you get an opportunity, you could talk to her about the danger of not listening to God when he's speaking to you today. Today, don't harden your heart, the Bible says. Today, if you hear God's voice, don't harden your heart, because maybe tomorrow he's not going to speak to you. 
And so why not, why, why shrug God off today when in the future um, you might not hear from him? And so that could end up being a problem. Uh, so yeah, look for opportunities to talk with her. Um, if she says, I want to keep thinking about it, maybe you can ask her, can we keep talking about it? Because I would like to, you know, I'd like to keep talking to you about this and go ahead and, but, but you can't do it for her, right? It's got to be a decision that she makes uh, to be able uh, to come to Christ. All right. So we have a question. We have a question here from Facebook. And I can tell that it's a question from Facebook because it is significantly longer uh, than the other one. So I'm going to go ahead and bring this over here. And thank you for your question. I appreciate that, Debbie. Debbie says, uh, Pastor, um, question, Pastor Robert. I know some people, I included, believe heaven will be like we think it may be because of our beliefs. My family was raised Catholic and do believe in purgatory. I know my brother definitely did and has passed away a few years ago. I pray all the time because I don't want him stuck in purgatory, which is where I'm afraid he might be because of his beliefs. I hope this question makes sense. Um, let me just reread the beginning of it again here, Debbie. Uh, I think some people I included believe heaven will be like we think it may be because of our beliefs. My family was raised Catholic and I do believe in, um, and do believe in purgatory. All right, Debbie, I think I've, I've got your question here. And um, let me go ahead and just respond this way. Yeah, we can have a certain belief and we can be raised with it and it might be hard to undo that belief, but we want to end up being biblical on what we believe and purgatory comes from tradition within the Catholic Church. The apocrypha books of the Bible, which some of them support the idea of a purgatory, were added in the 1500s into the Catholic Church. We had our all, all of our books of the Bible, all 66, were being circulated by the late 100s. And we have very early compilation of the 27 books of the New Testament, and uh, or how many ever there are, and uh, very early. And none of them speak anything about purgatory. It's not biblical at all. And so the question is, now you still may struggle with that as because you are brought up with it and you believe it and you might think that he's there, but biblically he's not. It's appointed once for man to die and then comes judgment. And so you just want to reevaluate and make sure that you're believing the truth. Um, I grew up Methodist and there were some things I needed to change when I was born again. Uh, I didn't, I wasn't an adult Methodist though. So by the time I, I met the Lord at 14 and I, I went, began to go to some charismatic churches and some Pentecostal churches and God kind of brought me out into certain areas. So I understand your difficulty, but Debbie, I really encourage you to be biblical about what you believe. Do your own study on purgatory. Look it up. Is there any passage in the Bible? Um, look up uh, on um, your web browser. What does the Bible say about purgatory? And then begin to look at the different arguments and begin to seek God and pray about what you're reading. Because you're going to get people who defend it. And you're going to get people who, who don't and begin to look at it. And is it sola scriptura? Is it all in the Bible? Catholics don't believe in sola scriptura. In fact, the Roman Catholic Church is why the five solas were ever brought up because they didn't believe in the Bible alone. 
So they came up with indulgences, which is one of the reasons that Sola Scriptura came out because they bought, they believed you could buy sin, pay the Catholic church to be able to sin. And so you had indulgences that were being taught. And so Sola Scriptura came up. So we want to believe the Bible and the Bible alone in the book of Revelation, the faithful church is commended because they keep the word of God. They've kept God's word um, and preserved it and God commended them for it. We want to be the faithful church that keeps God's word. And I don't want to believe anything that's not biblical. I'm so open. I mean, I'm, I'm re I want to research the Bible. I want to search through it. I want to know the right and wrong way to look at it. And if I believe something that's wrong and not biblical, I don't want to believe it. I want to believe what the Bible says. Now, there are different ways to look at it. There are different interpretations that people have. A lot of times there's different questions about the way that a passage should be looked at, but that's not what we're talking about. We're talking about something like purgatory that clearly is not in the Bible. And so, Debbie, you want to love God's word and have your loyalty not be to a denomination, but have your loyalty be to God. I want my loyalty not to be to Calvary Chapel, which I'm an, I'm an affiliate pastor, not meaning I'm a pastor in an, an affiliated pastor in Calvary Chapel, but I don't want my loyalty to be to Calvary Chapel. I want my loyalty to be to Jesus Christ. You don't want your loyalty to be to any church. Even if you attend that church, you want your loyalty to be to God and the church should be happy with it. That's what the church should teach you. Don't give me your loyalty, give it to God. Don't give the church your loyalty, give it to God. Because that's that's what the real question is here. All right. So thank you very much. I appreciate that. Um, we have a question from Kay, and I hope that was helpful, Debbie. We have a question from Kay. In eternity, will Jesus nails wounds always be there? If so, that always be a reminder of our sin nature in the past. Will God have to always see us through Christ um, or as adopted? All right, Kay, thank you very much for your question. I appreciate that. Um, I have never thought of the scars in the hands and side of Jesus throughout all of eternity. And as far as I understand it, that's the case. I can't recall off the top of my head what the exact passages say. I know there's something in the book of Revelation and there, there's something somewhere else, but I can't recall exactly what they are. So I would need to go back and look them up to be able to give you a really good solid answer as to what they say. But let's just say that he, he is going to have these wounds always. I've never thought of them in the negative way, but it's a reminder of my sin nature. But in the positive way that Jesus rescued me, he rescued me by dying for me. And he carries these scars of the grace of God who became a man for us that my sins could be forgiven. So I've always thought of it, Kay, in a positive way, not in a negative way. I don't think there's not going to be any more tears or sorrow up in heaven. I'm not going to be running around going, what a creep I was. I can't believe I did those things. I can't believe I had that sin nature. No, we all have a sin nature. Every one of us. We're all weak. We've all got problems that need to be worked out, problems that we've got to get taken care of in our lives. And uh, to think that we're going to run around heaven thinking, I wish I didn't have that problem. I wish I didn't have a sin nature. Look, God knows our weakness. He knows that we're but dust. He knows we're going through this life and then we've got this in nature. It doesn't mean we should make any kind of excuses for that sin nature at all or for that sin. We know we need to repent from it. We are responsible for it, even though we have a sin nature. And, and we want to, to give him righteousness and be growing and having the inner man renewed. 
but I don't think of it as a negative. I think of it as a positive. Um, and yes, we have been adopted into the family of God and we are his children, co-heirs together with Christ. And because of that co-heirs, we, we have inherited everything. Everything belongs to us, which is an amazing thought. Everything belongs to me, not just the stuff that's mine, but everything belongs to me. And I think that's absolutely amazing. All right, Kay, thank you very much. I appreciate that. Uh, let's go ahead and look here and see if we've got another question. So this is a new camera that we got up uh, just um, today, kind of unexpectedly, by the way, we've been looking at the possibilities of uh, having another camera that would kind of show uh, the setup that we have here and kind of what I'm looking at. So you can see I've got a, a couple of cameras here. I got a camera over here and I got a camera here. A um, couple of monitors that are up, got the lights that are up, the soundboard that's here. This is the iPhone that I use to show the scriptures. I got a stream deck that gives me my different scenes and um, ATEM, which connects all of the different um, cameras up, as well as this camera, which is just connected um, through the internet. Uh, so we have another question though. That's enough of that. Um, a follow-up. I'm glad you followed up on this question, Joe. I wanted to make sure we had it. Um, a follow-up. I guess I struggle with the statement of not having to reconcile. Could that be taken to allow someone to just keep a hardened heart without giving a chance to let someone back into their life? I understand your rebuttal, and I thank you for clarifying. Yeah, I think, again, it's nuanced, Joe, and, and I know I already said that. Um, it's nuanced, and there are people that if you don't let back in your life, it would probably be wrong. But there are certainly people you shouldn't let back in your life. A woman that has been molested by their father, this unthinkable thing, and he repents and she forgives him, but she doesn't invite him over for Thanksgiving dinner because she's got children and she wants to protect them from something that may or may not be genuine. There's no problem with that. There's no problem with putting up barriers in your life. It doesn't make you unchristian. And if you think that it does, Joe, I would just love, what passage do you think there is that tells you that you have to reconcile with everyone who has hurt you. Let's, you know, try to go the other way. We know we have to forgive, but I don't know about, you know, again, reconciling with everyone that has hurt you. But I'm, I'm glad that you um, understand the position um, that I'm taking and thank you for the follow-up. I really do. Sometimes you wonder how clear you are when you're trying to explain something, especially when it's so nuanced, like that particular question was. But thank you very much, Joe, I appreciate it. So John P has a question, John says, uh, hi, Pastor Robert. We have a dis we had a discussion the other day. Could the death of Jesus be considered suicide, like suicide by cop um, is a form of suicide today? Thank you, uh, John. I appreciate that. And I'm going to say no. It's not going to be like death by by suicide by cop. Um, so someone's getting chased by cops, they jump out of their car, they have a gun, and they're obviously got several cars coming in, they're going to die, they start shooting at them, they get shot and die. No, the death of Jesus, if you want to say dying on purpose, he died on purpose, he gave himself to die on purpose, would be more like a man who sees a child on a railroad track, sees the train coming in fast, calculates, I don't have enough time to grab that child and pull the child out of the way. And so he runs and he knocks the child out of the way just in time for the train to hit him. Now he made a calculated decision to give his life for that child. This is not a suicide at all. It is a sacrifice. And that's what Jesus did. He gave his life as a sacrifice 
he was this is not any form of suicide he knew he knew that we needed someone who was perfect who would die for us in fact god became a man to be able to come and do that for our lives and so um yeah uh, if you have a follow-up question john I, I would love to talk about that but yeah no this is a sacrifice not any kind of a of a suicide at all especially any kind of a suicide he was giving up his life but he was giving up his life for someone and um, we would say that was a very heroic act when we would say sacrifice by, by suicide by cop is incredibly cowardice not only is someone wanting to die and take their own life and hurt all the people around them but they want to make somebody else pull the trigger who will probably think about that for the rest of their lives all right so um thank you very much uh i do appreciate that question um let's see who was it who asked me that question john was that you no no who was it um I lost the question here. Okay, yeah, John, John P. Yeah, <clears throat> I appreciate that. Um, let's see, Require. Um, that's all right. So I'm just making my way down through here. This would be a good time to do this little guy here, play with that little camera right now. Well, I'm taking time to find the questions that are here. So we have a, um, a follow-up by Queen D on um, the question about Kanye. So let me go ahead and bring that in. Get back to this guy here. All right. Um, Romans 8.28. Kanye says uh, that Hitler, I was raised to know um, that God works <clears throat> through all things, even Hitler. How is saying that allows people to make money for doing so? Um, how is he saying, how is, how is saying that allows people to make money from for doing so so i don't understand your question with it all right so let me just answer what i can and if we have time i mean we're running out of time now you can go ahead and and clarify that question and i'll get this um in uh from keith uh i'll get this these comment sections from him i'll be able to take a look at it the, the fact that god could use all things to work together for the good d does in no way make what the what the all things is is good so God didn't cause it to happen. It was bad. It was evil. It was wicked. And yet God could cause it to work together for the good. And someone who thinks that that justifies what someone did because God used it for the good is completely twisting and manipulating scripture. In fact, I've never even heard anybody use such a case. So we have someone who goes in and shoots up a school full of kids. And then somebody says, God uses all things to work together for good, so what that guy did was okay. Not at all. What the guy did was monstrous. But God is able to use all things together for the good. And so with those families that had the unspeakable happen to them and they lost children, what I pray for them with is that God would somehow bring good in their lives out of this. That God would use the suffering and the sorrow like he used the suffering of Jesus on the cross to bring us eternal life. That God would use the suffering and sorrow that they're going through because of what that monster did in their lives. They're the one, someone who loves violence, which God says he hates those who do love violence. And what they did doesn't make it right. I, I'll just be honest with you, Queen. It's never even entered into my mind that Romans 8.28 could possibly be a justifying matter for something someone did wrong. The fact that God can make something someone does that is wrong work out good in someone's life by no means even begins to justify what they said. All right. 
So uh, we have one more question from Psych Man. We're running a little late, late but I haven't seen Psych Man for a while. I think you were out of the country. Um, hey, from wherever that is, that's where you're still there. Um, how do we bring glory to God while doing work before men? Just by doing the right thing at a time, regardless of who is watching. Um, I caused a scene in Egypt giving um, ex exits money. All right, sorry to hear about that. I guess you are in Egypt, uh, psych man. Uh, and um, so, yeah, you're going to do, Jesus said, when you do your good works, do them in such a way that when men see you, they glorify God. So when we can do things hidden, we want to hide it. But when we're doing good works in front of people, we want to do it in such a way that we don't bring glory to ourselves, but we do it in such a way that they give glory to God. And I think that this, we have to be humble when we do it. I think we've got to point to God while we do it. So there's, there's, we just go out of the way that this isn't me. I wouldn't be here if it wasn't for Christ, but because of Christ, may he get the glory. I want to help you out. Sorry you caused a scene there. All right, we're at the end of our Q&A. Good to see you guys today. Good to have you join us. Really good questions, by the way. I really appreciate that. And I appreciate the dialogue staying on point as we make our way through here. I love that I see that there were several questions here from Facebook today. Uh, still not as many as what we used to get. I think they made a change on Facebook and we're still getting them, but the vast majority are from YouTube, which is okay. Um, not quite sure why that's the case. But anyway, we have a service in about an hour and um, that in, in exactly an hour. And we are in the book of Revelation and we're gonna be looking at the throne of God. And we're gonna see what God does from the throne. And we're gonna see what it means to me as a Christian and what it means to someone who is who is who who needs judge, who is gonna be judged by God and why God judges from the throne. This is the heavenly vision in Revelation chapter four. Now we should get through verses three, four, and five today, but I'm not sure we'll make it all the way through that, but I'm not concerned about being in a hurry here. I wanna dive in. So we are certainly today gonna to see the throne of God and the one who sits on the throne. That might be all that we see. Um, and we may just go ahead and look at some other passages in the Bible about the throne room and God who sits on the throne, the throne passages uh, that are in the Bible. All right, so it's good to see you guys. I uh, hope, stay close to Jesus. A walk in the spirit, you won't fulfill the lust of the flesh. Delight in the Lord and he'll give you the desires of your heart. If you delight in the things of the world, you're gonna have desires for things in the world abide in Christ and let his word abide in you and you will have whatever you desire. Let God renew your inner man day by day. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Cleanse you hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you're double-minded, and you'll find yourself drawing closer to Jesus. All right, love you. God bless you guys. We'll see you, uh, Lord willing, on Saturday. Uh, we'll have another Q&A and uh, join us online in just an hour. Or if you're here in Tucson, we'd love to have you come down for it. All right, I'm out. Bye.